0: Hello to you, Michael.
1: Hello to you, Mr. McGann. Moncon McGann. Jesus Christ, I've had to listen to this for the last hour almost. This is absolutely insufferable. Can I ask you a favour, please? Yes, yes.
0: Did you travel the world? I did. How yeah. did you travel the world? I travelled in, in airplanes. You travelled in airplanes.
1: <laughs> I did. Oh, but I thought you were a donkey-loving, green, tree-hugging environmentalist. But no. After all this shite, you got onto one of Ryanair's beautiful, comfortable <laughs> uh, chicken-stuffed sandwich-serving seven three sevens, didn't you?
0: I did. I did. I didn't realise at the time. So it was two years ago. I, I said I was giving up flying. I don't
1: want to hear any <laughs> of your fucking stories. Now shut your mouth and go away.
2: Well, you know, my special guest on this week's episode faced some pretty tough calls from listeners this week. Michael O'Leary is always a tricky customer to handle, but poor Moncon McGann also had to deal with Conor McGregor, Jerry Adams and, oh dear, even Hector O'Hokogon. I've always found Moncon McGann a fascinating individual, and I know that when you listen to the interview, you will too. You might be familiar with Mon Con from his many brilliant TV and travel shows. You'd often see him on the Six O'Clock Show talking about um, his travels around the world, um, talking about the Irish language for which he has an, a deep, deep love. His newest book is called Tree Dogs and Banshee Fingers and Other Irish Words for Nature. He built his own house out of straw bales. He doesn't own a TV and he grows and rears most of what he eats. Um... He also is, it kind of the lifestyle is kind of paying off because he's my age, he's 51. But I tell you, he looks 34 years of age. And you can see that in his skin and his hair. He's so young looking and maybe that's, the, the, that's a testament to the quality of life he has led and the fact that he's followed his dreams. Here's a little taste of what's coming up in my chat with Moncon.
0: So suddenly the local Ecuadorian militia come down to me and they say, we're going to need some things from you. We're going to need five grand from you. We're going to need you to drain the swimming pool so that we could requisition it and put missiles in it for storage and we're going to need you to pick six of your labourers and offer them for the army. When I was up there living in a cow shed, dreaming big idealistic dreams, drinking my own piss, he came out with a camera and TG Car, and I was just saying, oh, we're all connected, we're all one. And Ruan turned off the camera and said, you fucking over-educated uh, waster, no one wants to hear your drivel. You know, wake up to yourself and get... People have a mortgage, people have a job, there's responsibilities. There must be something gross I'd like to buy. Ah... Uh, Buffy the, the Vampire box
2: set or something <laughs> She's wise. Buffy the Vampire is what the hell? She's powerful myth. Oh powerful myth, yes exactly. Augustender was Buffy the Vampire. And the Glunach
1: and the and the and the, the Ushin uh, meant for Buffy.
2: <laughs> Stay tuned for my full chat with Moncon coming up shortly. Now, one of the questions that has been occupying my mind of late is what the NFET team are going to do once this whole damn COVID thing finally comes to something of an end. I mean, they say that NFET are going to disband, but what are they going to do next? Surely all the attention they've been receiving over the last 18 months, it must have been intoxicating. I mean, they all just came out of nowhere like superstars. It was like as if they were discovered by Louis Walsh. But what will they do next? I mean, now that we're opening up again slowly and culture is beginning to come back and theatres are beginning to... theatres are beginning to open. Hmm. I know. MCD presents their debut stage tour. Nefet and Friends. A hilarious evening of stories and songs from your favourite medical masterminds featuring Professor Tony Holohan. So he says... As Tishuk, I can't possibly allow this, Tony. So I turned around to him and I said, "Who the fuck do you think is running this country, anyway?" <laughs> it's a good one. It's a good one, It's swing time with Professor Luke O'Neill. Yeah, you know it's been a roller coaster couple of years for me and the boys. Just want to share a couple of thoughts. Hit it. Just like that, we came from nowhere, like the virus. We're the boys of immunology Woo! Hit it! Woo! We told you, no, you can't go there And no can do Yeah, we scared the shit out of ye <laughs> cloppity pop Woo! Featuring a haunting solo performance from Professor Sam McConkey. There
3: are ten million cases in bald That's a lot
2: And introducing boy band sensation Ronan Klin and the Pandemics with their greatest hits. You're not going on a summer holiday. No more flying for a year or two. With comedy from George Glee. I did economics. That was depressing. Then I did the pandemic. That was even more depressing. They said, George, how can you top that? Next
1: week, I start as Irish football correspondent.
2: Nefet and friend. Tickets on sale now. Modelling indicates that over 100 million tickets may be sold. Or maybe not. Maybe nowhere near that number. Maybe I was just making it up. (coughs) Sounds like an absolutely cracking show. See you there. Subject to licence. Now, do you like coffee? sure maybe you're having a coffee right now listening to the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Well, our friends at Sage Appliances, who make great coffee machines for home baristas have carried out some fascinating research. It revealed that the way you make your coffee at home and the kind of coffee you make actually says a lot about your personality. I didn't know that. Kind of like the way your pet dogs look a bit like us Um, after a while. You know, the way you see somebody and you go, their dog kind of resembles them in a way, you know. Our home-brewed coffee share some of our character traits as well, apparently. I had to test out this theory. I really did. So I called up some of my good friends on Zoom. Roy, thanks a million for doing this No problem um, h- How do you make your coffee? Oh, just keep it simple at the end of the day So a cappuccino? No, or- just one shot Just get the shot in and move on And sugar no, or? No,
1: why would you want sugar? I see hmm. lads talking about milk and sugar all the time And cinnamon hmm. I saw a lad putting butter in his coffee the other day <laughs> How can you drink
2: buttered coffee? Okay, so basically Keep it simple yeah. Black Slightly bitter Scalding Get it done Put it away Job's done <laughs> Prime Minister uh, Boris Johnson, um, your go-to coffee? Well, 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 ideally, it will be a
1: macchiato, Americano, Frapper mochaccino, ipso facto, chamba-wamba, caramelato, infused with a vestigio of taramasalata in excelsis, right. frapper chapa wappa chamba-wamba.
2: That's just a made-up coffee. Of course. <laughs> Jürgen Klopp um, I'm a big Liverpool fan And I never knew You were a, a yeah. bit of a home barista Yeah yeah You know I mean Where do you think I get all the energy For all the Yeah you know the, the, Of course the manic jumping And yeah. the shouting And yeah. all the
1: gnashing of teeth And yeah. the smiling And the laughing <laughs> the
2: laughing Yeah yeah, yeah. It's coffee <laughs> <laughs> oh. So what do you think Is there anything to it Does the research hold water You decide Uh, But listen, how good a home barista are you in any case? Sage Appliances and Curry's PC World want you to tell us how to make the perfect coffee at home. Do you think your skills make you the hashtag home barista of the year? Well, here we go. Submit your videos or photos publicly on Twitter and Instagram using the hashtag Home Barista of the Year for your chance to win the ultimate home brewing setup with Sage Appliances coffee machines, Curry's PC World vouchers and yearly coffee subscriptions worth over, listen, 10,000 euro. All of that up for grabs. And don't forget We're also giving you the chance on the Mario Rosenstock podcast to win a very fancy HP Pavilion laptop courtesy of Curry's PC World. All you've got to do is share a story from your school or college days with me on a voice note. All of the details are in the notes on this episode down below and on my Twitter. Thanks. Anyway, let's meet my special guest for this episode. He's a writer. He's a passionate Gail Gore. He's an adventurer. He's a storyteller and so many other things I don't have time to mention here because he's standing by and waiting to tell you himself. It's Moncon McGann. Enjoy our chat. Moncon, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you, Mario.
2: Now, ostensibly, Moncon, you live very differently to the vast majority of the population. Sketch it out for us. Where do you live? What kind of a house do you live? What do you do every day? Paint a picture.
0: I love it. Like, you know, I was the sort of... Waster, the dropout that people used to be embarrassed by. You know, I went to Gonzaga school and all my other friends have done well in the world and I was like, I live on whatever my, you know, whatever pittance I can earn and... Um, that was an embarrassment. And now we're changed into the world where now so people like you are asking me what I do. So as you said, I live in Mid- You're Midlands. you are an exotic. <laughs> exactly. I live in the Midlands in Westmeath um, because at some point in my life, I decided <clears throat> when I was young, I thought I can't do that real world. I can't have a mortgage and go in and out of a job and have, um, you know, people relying on me. I just thought I need to be independent. So at some point my granny died my granny was this Republican revolutionary and she died and left me 10 grand and so I was able to buy 10 acres in Westmead in 97 onto this land and the first thing I did was put shelter up um, because that's sort of important and What I, kind of shelter? Well like I had lived at the time in India, in Africa and South America. And like in Bolivia, people were making their house out of reeds because that was surrounding reeds. In Tibet, they were making their house out of stones because they had big round river wash stones that had come down from the Himalayas. Um, in Africa, it was all mud. So I looked around me in Westmead, and it was, there was good enough barley and oats being grown. And there people had bales, the square bales. So I just went to a neighbour and I got 200 bales of good two-year-old dried um, barley straw. And I built a house out of that. I just used those as massive Lego bar- blocks
2: Even though you didn't know how to build, per se?
0: No. Well, I mean, when you're living, when I'd spent my time, you know, in in South America and in all those travels, you're meeting other people who live simply, who live their own, uh, you know, who make their own houses. They never have a mortgage. When they want, they build it. And so I'd seen that. And then I'd been up in Canada, up in British Columbia, where there was a group of people growing growing cannabis, organic cannabis, legally at the time. And they were sort of building out of bales of straws. That's how I got the idea. Um, and at the time, I mean, I was so innocent and naive. So I rang up Westmean County Council and said, "Like, I want to build this house, um, but you don't know what the house is. So how about I just go ahead and build it, and then you and the fire officer and all can come out and we can have a talk, and then maybe <laughs> and I can just build this bail like. house." Yeah, exactly.
2: With the fire officer. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: So they just said, J- "Just, just, leave us alone." Like it was a Friday afternoon, Westmead County Council. The last thing they wanted some I- overeducated idealist dropout idealist. So just, just, just said, "Go away. Just leave us the hell alone." Like pretend this phone call never happened, and they dropped the phone.
2: So you still live there.
0: I sort of lived there I mean that house I, In the straw bale house Not really, no I proved that was built in 97 mm. and I like because I didn't know how to build the house would have stayed but I didn't know about foundations mm. I used to take books out of the library out of the Ranland, the Rat Mines and Pembroke Library um, but the foundations book wasn't there so I had just put like a little bit of concrete around the edge mm. and so that began there was subsidence in one corner okay. so it cracked um, so about six years after that, in two thousand and two, I built a slightly bigger house. Again, not maybe twenty foot by about twelve foot. Or but you built that house. as well? I built. I started building that, but I didn't have the courage. Well, it's me to give me permission for a straw bale, but I used concrete block in that. And I did the plumbing and the electricity and everything in the first house. Second house, the concrete blocks became very wavy as I was building yes. them, so I got some help. Um, but it meant that that house was built in 2002 and it's still standing today. So it's cosy. It's just a one-room house with a grass on the roof and mud and straw on the outside And of the you live blocks. alone? I live absolutely
2: blissfully alone, exactly. And there's not much noise?
0: No noise whatsoever. So I've been 10 acres and I'm live, I am live... It's down around, down from the hill. It's sort of... It's a, a drumlin I bought and then I surrounded my house entirely with oak trees that I planted 20 years ago. And they're massive now. Like are they? they? they, they so are, 20
2: years they grew a lot. Yeah,
0: they're about like 30 foot high. Um, and they're going to be... Some of them like are big thick ones and in about... I planted whatever 12,000 trees in another about 30 years or 40 years, maybe 50. They're going to be worth a grand each. So whatever. Like oak is amazing. We Mm. forget that. Our trees grow better in Ireland than anywhere else. So if I planted 9,000 trees, you know, each one, each tree cost me about 10 cents when Mm. you planted them. Definitely in 100... Years from now, I'm having there 20 years. 100 years are going to be worth three grand each, mm. but now, probably in about 50, 40, 50 years, I'll be worth a grand. So they heat me the little the saplings because I don't want them all to mm. grow. I cut down and uh, yeah, there I have my hens there, I have my bees there, I have my vegetables, I have my polytone, I have my grapes, and some years I have pigs. I don't have pigs at the moment.
2: So you are to a certain extent are fully self sufficient.
0: Yeah, to a certain. I mean, I'm still buying, I suppose, my grain. I'm going to try, this year I tried to grow oats, but there's a thing called a naked oat, a oat without the husk, yeah. which you don't need, but just every, every magpie and crow came from miles around.
2: Yeah. But I'm going to do, yeah, i expand. S- so without being necessarily facetious, uh, Moncon, uh, try and tell the public who are listening to this what, what you wouldn't have or do that we would all be accustomed to do. So, for example, am I right in saying you don't watch TV?
0: No, I've never had a TV. You've no. never had a TV? No, no. And I, sw- I mean, I started making TV programmes in 1996. <laughs> yes. So it's now 25 years. So you years. actually, in a
2: sense, don't know even what you're doing when you're making a TV programme. You're That's going, what is that strange box I'm talking into? Why do you keep making me do this? That's
0: the bliss of it. I mean, the poor crews who are looking at me still say, do you not know how to wa- You know, do a, d- to present to camera, how to walk along? the? But you don't pieces. even know where it will appear. <laughs> I don't care. The last thing I want to know is how it will appear. So
2: no. you don't have a TV? No, I don't. So I don't. it's pointless asking you about Love Island.
0: Exactly, exactly, no. <laughs> I mean, I, I try and find out what these things are. Like, And I, I have a girlfriend who lives in Dublin and she knows even less. At least I try, I'll read p- papers. So I will know some, I will have read something about Love, Ireland, okay. but I will never So watched. you will
2: read newspapers?
0: Uh, yeah, I will. Yeah, exactly. But online.
2: you are, let's say you are not, do you have a smartphone? I do, You yeah. do? Yeah, oh, I do. Okay.
0: And I like that, yeah. And I mean, I've now got onto like social media slowly. Okay. In January, I got onto, I started collecting loads of words for the sea, for the ocean. Uh, really rare words. I met with these fishermen and the words were so beautiful. The insights they were giving me in Galway and Mayo and Donegal. I thought, I need to give these words to the world some way. And like last you know, year, COVID, there was no way of meeting with people, <laughs> no way of giving the words. So I finally relented and got on um, What's that? What? now what's that? Instagram, yes. where you put a photo and a word up, and um, that has done very well. Um, so now I have fifteen thousand followers, which is probably nothing compared to what you have. But for me, living in my little strawberry house, putting up Irish words, I thought, Jesus, you can put up words to do with a, a fishing practice that has gone for years, said by local fishermen who are you know who haven't said the words for forty years, and put them out on those social media and engage with people.
2: But how ironic, Moncon, that mm. in the last year and a half in the very moment that our world has plunged into a pandemic that your style of life has suddenly, did suddenly become uber trendy. (laughs) In other words, half the idiots of the world, myself included, went, oh,
1: I'd love to live in
2: an old clay and wattle made cabin in the middle of nowhere in Castle Pollard with absolutely nothing there and just stray and bales and and am I, you know, self-sufficient? I'd love to do that. And Mm. you've been doing it. And how do you reflect on that, that the whole world kind of, I suppose... In a way, in the last year and a half, uh, wanted to kind of, in a way, co- become what you are presently living. Have you thought about that? Or? Yeah. we thought about the way the world has turned in your direction almost? Yeah. So we have become more, for example, I mean, at least we have not ba- nodded our head to it, the whole world of environmentalism. And I know that, you mm-hmm. know, you are an environmentalist yeah. and, you know, solitude, peace and quiet mental health. This is, of course, your life. Mm-hmm. Um, has Have you reflected on that?
0: I have. Um, and so one could look at it in both ways. We could either say, I'm now on the pig's back because everyone is, is, think, is wanting the things that were so unfashionable. Or you could look at the loneliness of the last, what I'm, as you say, 51 now, of the last 30 years where I was the oddball and where everyone was so interested in, you know, consumerism and, and sort of capitalism and growth. And I just thought, I don't fit in in this world. So you have that isolation. And particularly like in the early years, when you're 20, 24, 28, and you think, I don't want to do that. That doesn't, it's not feeding me that constant engagement and social life. When did you first know that? Uh, Ah, uh, like I, I would have known that when I was six or seven. Like, I mean, no, I, I was in um, a sacred heart school with me and Samantha Power and a girl called Lucy Masterson. Samantha Power, who went on to the UN in America and all. And we were just best friends. So we just spent our whole times under a hedge. So when you're up until you're seven, six or seven, you can live that idealistic life. But then you go to a boys school and then it's just competition and, you know, who's going to win and who's got the best boast. So that was the age I thought, oh, right, I actually don't fit into this world but you can just about hide out in school. So I just had my herb garden and I was just talking to... Like, I think when we we're born into the world, I believe, or at least the likes of me, some I have guidance, some had have those voices guiding you still. So I was able to tune into that. But then the moment it really kicks in is you're 18 and you're 19. It says, OK, buckle up now, go out and get a job. So from then on in, at least until TG Carr set up in 96. So from 19, when I was 18 in 1988 to now... Uh, To then, to 96 I was just the lonely Isolated weirdo uh, Thinking I'm never going to get a job I'm never going to do anything Which is why I'd ended up Up in the Himalayas in India Like a dropout Um, And then I thought No, I'm going to find a way Of fitting in and
2: what was your way of fitting in? Tell everybody, tell us, tell me what you do.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's all by accident. So I was, as I said, I had spent a lot of time wandering, which, you know, you get a lot of those sort of lost dreamers who do. They go off traveling forever, you know, backpacking different places. But the weird thing is back then in the 90s, if you were white, you suddenly were given positions. Like I was in South America. I ended up getting rabies. I got bitten by a rabid dog and had to find shelter in this place on the Ecuadorian Peruvian border. And um, so when I was there, I realised, OK, I have no money and I have rabies. So I've got, finally found a rabies vaccine after like enormous danger and, and scale. But I had to keep the other vaccine in the fridge. So I just settled somewhere. So I settled in this place, in this hostel, an organic farm in the Ecuadorian-Peruvian border. And I was there for three weeks where the owner, she was Canadian, her mum was sick back in Canada. So she has to go back to Canada. So she leaves me in charge of the hostel on this organic farm with 24 acres and I had about 18 staff. So I was 22. I was still living at home in my mum's house in Donnybrook, still sleeping in my Paddington duvet. (laughs) And yet now I was in charge of whatever, 12 to 18 campesinos, you know, local farmers. And every Friday I'd put out a table on the front lawn. And you know, cada persona viene, he says, yo tengo yo necesito un poquito más dinero para un problema con mi familia. They'd all explain why they needed extra money from me, and I'd have to start the rake of, um, of pesos out on the table. And at my age, totally innocent, which is, say, hey, here's another bit for you. No, you can't have any more money. And I know you have a new child, and you know, I know your, your uncle's in prison, but I'm not going to help you. And all went well with that until. Reasonably well, as much as an innocent, naive Donnybrook boy could handle that, until Ecuador and Peru suddenly went to war with each other uh, when I was there. And my hostel was on the border. So suddenly the local Ecuadorian milit- militia come down to me and they say, We're going to need some things from you. We're going to need five grand from you. We're going to need you to drain the swimming pool so that we can requis- requisition it and put um, missiles in it for storage. And we're going to need you to pick six of your laborers and offer them for the army. Hmm. So, like, in utter innocence, I just thought, which am I going to go for? Which six am I going to put in danger? But, but I remembered something that the O'Reilly, that my great-granduncle, Michael O'Reilly, had done in the GPO in 1916. It is said, Gareth Fitzgerald's dad, Desmond Fitzgerald, was in the GPO with him. They were both upstairs. So the O'Reilly had tried to call off the 19th of the Rising. He didn't believe it was, he knew it was going to fail. So he had tried to call it off. So eventually he comes when Pearson and Connolly go ahead with it, right? Now, Pearson and Connolly are not happy to see the O'Reilly in the GPO because he screwed all their plans up. Only a half or a quarter of the people who were meant to come out have mobilised, have mobilised, so he sends them upstairs. O'Rahilly's up there, and Desmond Fitzgerald's up there, and eventually, you know, day Thursday or Friday of the of Easter week, the fire, the roof on fire, the GPO, they're going to have to evacuate. So the O'Rahilly says, "Don't worry, I'll evacuate the people, I'll I'll go out with the white flag," and he says. Okay, I'm going to need... Because Connolly at this time had given power to the O'Rahilly, to my great-granduncle, because Connolly couldn't stand up. And he says, I'm going to to evacuate from the Henry Street side, out the side door, but I need a group. I'm going to lead the charge with a silver sword out in front of me. The lads are going to be behind you, whoever is going to volunteer. And they all said, yeah, we'll come out, we'll lead the charge, uh, evacuating out, to break through the barricade on uh, Moore Street. But uh, Desmond Fitzgerald said that the O'Rahilly said, OK... Irish speakers to the rear, English speakers to the fore. Okay. Thinking that, okay, if anyone's going to be milled down first, let the English speakers go. <laughs> so I decided the same with the poor Ecuadorian people. I said, the people who were of mestizo birth, who were of Spanish colonial birth, I thought they could be the ones to go and the indigenous people could stay behind and at least it would do some justice because they they've been there longer. Um, anyway, yeah, so... I you know That that was me there And then I went up in India And I ended up as a As a In a a leper station As the chief medical officer So it's this idea If you're white In places like that in the 90s You get these It was an unconscious bias Exactly Suddenly you're given responsibility Way beyond And so
2: you've travelled the world
0: I I travel the world Exactly
2: So if I just All continents
0: No and I haven't been to Russia And haven't been to Australia Okay. I haven't been to Japan either. Okay. But I made a six part TV series in China, in the Middle East, in South America, in Greenland, in Africa. Okay.
2: So the thinking the thinking person's Hector
0: that was it, exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly, yeah. I think actually, to be fair, Hector came into TGC after, i have been doing it for about five years, came into a production company and said, I want to make programmes, but that the presenter doesn't have a broom up his own arsehole, that he's a sense of humour, I think was Hector's yeah. selling point. It was going to be Mon Combo with a sense of humour. And he did it. Like, he did, oh, he
2: did. I think Hector's yeah. fantastic. I think Hector's fantastic, actually. And I've never made the comparison. So, the travel journalist mm-hmm. um, and then lover of Irish, Anna Gael Gore, Exactly. Where did the love of Irish come from? I suppose you could say, obviously, your background.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah you can see it. It's that moment. So I've just told you about what happened on yeah. Thursday in Easter Rising, but Monday is the moment you need to take. Monday morning. The O'Rahilly has been trying to drive around the country Saturday and Sunday, calling off the Rising. He drives back in his beautiful De Dion Bouton car. Like, he had the sixth ever car ever imported into Ireland in about 1909. And he always had the finest cars. So... He comes back, drives back, realise he's failed, that uh, Monday morning he hears that Connolly is coming down, the IRB, the citizen army are marching towards the GPO. So he's going to have to go out and join them because he believed, he had read all the books about 19th century British militarism. The leader, the officer leads from the front with a silver sword. Mm. And my granny, who's 16 at the time in 1916, she's watching her beloved heroic uncle in his gorgeous tweed, his sort of Irish made green tweed with a silver sword, putting on his leather boots, kissing his pregnant wife goodbye, knowing, guaranteed he's never going to see the baby again or his wife again. rich American heiress. And he's never going to see his four sons anymore again either because he knows it's a failure. He's determined, He's studied enough military um, history in the past that you cannot go up against the British Empire with like a few people. Everyone's going to be killed. Um, for my granny, that was her sealing moment, the, the moment that sealed into her consciousness. She thought... I have seen a hero I am going to devote my life to this moment to the O'Reilly giving up all his sons all his wealth all his hopes all his yacht all his plans for two things for Irish freedom and for the Irish language so my granny devoted her life to that that was 1916 I come along in 1970 and for her it's just like yesterday because she had spent all those intervening decades fighting doing three years in prison doing 32 days on hunger strike just doing jury intimidation in the 1930s she was involved if you were a jury on a jury that was um, making judgment against the IRA you'd suddenly get a knock on the door from my granny and I met people in Donnybrook who got it you didn't want to get that
2: okay and a bit like me actually uh uh, you might have known this but I would be very I would have been very close to my grandparents and uh-huh. in fact I grew up with my grandparents on a dairy farm would you believe huh. in Waterford and uh, my grandmother was very much of the listening to listen with mother and BBC Radio 4 and she although she lived in Waterford she was very I'm not of this world at all I'm in another world completely it was, like it was like I was living with McIntyre Higgins <laughs> and the grandfather my grandfather was very agricultural he was real Waterford and uh, you know so all this sort of stuff mm. um, and but you had you 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 were really close with your...
0: Yeah, you couldn't not be. She was a very strong, um, impactful carrier, uh, character. And so, you know, uh, so she was 70 when I was born nine seventy, 1970 and she lived down the road from us and then she lived in a granny flat but she was just so potent she was so potent and powerful and was determined we would speak Irish and would bribe us with money to say lovely proverbs and would make sure we spent every moment down in West Kerry meeting the old Blasket Islanders and the old local people and whenever someone would say like un, un rian she would say no eis deis listen to how he says on the sun un rian un, rian, un rian. and she'd get that tone and the poor local
2: person would think what's going on here having
0: the man having to repeat three times un rian so that we could get,
2: she just... But just in what you just said there, you've summed up everything in a way that people have railed against the teaching of the Irish language. Mm. Your grandmother did it in a completely different way. So you're actually, you relish, I could see your eyes there, the way you were relishing that memory and relishing saying these things. And since then, you've adored Irish words, a bit like my uncle, Gabriel Rosenstock.
0: Totally, and Gabriel has been a big influence on me. Gabriel Rosenstock, one of those few people who've realised Irish is important but actually all languages of the world and all cultures of the world are important and that was something that Irish speakers didn't often get they and were so, a
2: little they were a little um, they were a little nationalistic about exactly, it yeah, exactly a little, a little almost xenophobic
0: yeah yeah and just narrow claustrophobic mm-hmm. and so the problem with my granny I actually turned my back on Irish for a while because so you know my gra- if my granny is that fervid uh, character so she obviously saw the fight continuing right up until the 80s in Northern Ireland the hunger strikers the IRA she saw direct connection. So I would spend my 80s in my in the 1980s when I was about eighty when I was 12 and 13 writing the little Rizla letters the little calm letters into IRA prisoners and at some point when I realized that violence and I was such a sort of pacifist myself. My father is from a dairy farm in Longford. Absolute Redmondite pacifist, you know, would never have fought anything. So I went that way and I thought I don't like the fact that my granny was this tribal warrior, this this fighting terrier. And I didn't like the fact that she, although she adored the Irish language and the culture of West Kerry, she also saw the language as a weapon of war, so I stopped speaking it and started speaking like French and German and Spanish instead when I was travelling and It was how only how many that,
2: languages do you speak to a reasonable level?
0: they're all sort of street things, but German, French, and Spanish I'd have like you know I can get my make myself go and no, mm. I can make myself understood, none of them are, yeah. are eloquent. I would have learned yeah. Chinese and ma- Arabic for those t v programs I did with Tijgary like twenty years ago, yeah. but you forget them quickly. Um, But then it was making those Tijikara programmes with my brother for 20 years, these travel documentaries. This is Ruan, is it? Exactly. And made me realise there is... uh, Because you remember, Tijikara's idea at the time was Sulele. So we would go and meet with the... Stay with the Yami people on Lanyu Island or the Bedouin people um, in the Sinai Desert or the Berber people in Morocco or the Tarahumara people of Mexico and I realised there are people all around this world with incredibly rich cultures and they are on the edges. And suddenly dawned on me, God, that's what my granny was trying to introduce me to in West Kerry. Those Blasket Island people were people, dína people like there will never be the, the likes of again. So I went back to West Kerry and decided I want to connect with these people and with these languages. And now I feel home. I don't feel that same sense. or need to go elsewhere.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, just want to get back to one thing you said earlier on and just see, just see if anything comes out of this. But, I mean, obviously in your travels around the world and you realising at a young age that, you know, the normal, let's say, get a job as an accountant, nine to five wasn't one for you, and then you go around the world. Is there anything you learned, you, f- you feel, about humanity uh, 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 in, in the in the entirety of going around the world? Are there any lessons about the human person that you learned? So, for example... Depending on what way, depending on what uh, experiences you have in life, people are very fearful of humans. They're they're antagonistic. They're uh, they they even change on a daily basis. In the morning, they're nice. As soon as they get into a car, they turn into arso- assholes. Mm-hmm. Like I've seen that. You know, I've, I can't understand. I don't drive myself, but I can't understand people turn into complete assholes in cars. But what did you learn anything about people that even changed your mind, or what did you learn about humans? What is the human condition as you see it?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, as I see it, it as. The, and it is only my perspective, but it makes sense to me that uh, it has done since I was a child and it makes increasingly sense that somehow we, and this is a myth, but this is a way of expressing how I see the world. We are incarnated, I mean, this could be a myth, we are incarnated into human bodies. And I believe that we are, seem to be so creative, so idealistic, so full of courage and vision and hopes. And you see it in babies, you see it in children, um and we want to express that but when we then when we when we get into the body and into the mind suddenly all these fears and all these darknesses come up. And sometimes they seem to be there from day one. The baby is born and has all those ghosts and hauntings. Um, but beyond that is this wish to break through that and to really shine. To really shine. And so I teach travel writing. I teach different types of writing sometimes in the Irish Writers' Centre. And you're there with a room full of people who all want to connect into that bigger self, that creative self. And they, they remember when they used to write a little bit of poetry or a little play or a song when they were like nine or ten or eleven, and they remembered the time they were told no. Same way if you were teaching art, you know, Um, or if you teach yoga or dance, you see there was a time everyone in the room were happy to dance when they were a child and suddenly said, don't dance. Art, we all painted, don't paint. But all of us have that yearning to connect into not all of those artful creative forms, but to express ourselves in some way. And the whole world says, don't, you'll be laughed at. It happens, as we know, very clearly in school. And then after that, it's repeated, but we know the moment. And it breaks my heart. So I go around anywhere in the world. And in I a way, what
2: you're saying there is when we're born, we're born as one. All of us. Mm-hmm. We're born as a, a ball of one. Yeah. That we're part of. We're part of what you might call humanity. And then we spend the rest of our lives basically separating from each other exactly. and, and and being untangled. Yeah. And coming away from that and being embarrassed by ourselves and by embarrassed by ourselves, of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. But what um, you
0: say there is so potent, because if you say we're born of one it's so easy to imagine that you were one before you were born, that everything comes out of a consciousness, of comes out of a, a togetherness, a unified whole. And again, that's what seems to be what physics is now telling us as well, that there is this unified field and then it expresses itself in different mm. ways in different things. And I think maybe that's what we, when we're in isolation in the body, we forget, we, we remember it at night, we remember it just at the edge of it. Th- we are one, there is no need to be afraid. But then everything about the human condition is saying and particularly the last year and a half be afraid there are germs everywhere there's danger everywhere and um, and that's the human condition well
2: that's a funny one because it's a dichotomy because it says be afraid there are germs everywhere But then return to one Return to nature Return to peace Return Mm -hmm. to solitude Return to a sense Of that dreaded word I hate mental health Those two words Because it's so It's so bandied around Mm -hmm. But So in other words There was a dichotomy there
0: You're so right It's been the last year and a half Has been fascinating And you know Because it's exactly those things This is a time where Government is telling you what to do, and we are losing all this
2: freedom and all this liberty. And because of that, we're finding all this new liberty and yeah, freedom. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Oh, that it's it's it's, oh, it's 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 there's a negative, maybe potential mm-hmm. negative on one side, but a huge positive on the other. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's beautiful. It's a time. It's a sort of time that you only hear about in books or in myth. It's vast, and the consequences are going to be huge. I've I've such a strong feeling that there'll be a time almost before now, or definitely before twenty twelve, which will be there will be the dark ages, and then the time when people decided actually. We are, Did you say 2012? Yeah, just a random right, number. The last decade yeah. seems to be going towards where we are now. Um, How you do you know, mean by that? Well, I mean, and I choose, one reason you choose 2012 is just because, you know, uh, all of the ancient mysteries from the um, or prophecies from the Inca, from the Mayan, from people around the world, all of this idea that the world was going to end in around 2012... Um, is that right? Yeah, it's just something you can trace through a lot of different things. I see. Um, but it doesn't, again, that doesn't need specific, but it's the same, almost like the 21st century brought in a new consciousness. Yeah, time.
2: when they say the world will end, I presume you mean, I presume you don't mean that they meant that literally. They maybe meant that there was going to be a changing of the guard. Is uh, all, that what you mean? Exactly. I, I think it was the Or it, a new real, a new consciousness is going to Yeah, I to think be they
0: couldn't see beyond 2012. They couldn't see what things were going to change. The human being was on a... And we can almost see that path that human beings have been on, you know, definitely for the last 2,000 years. But another 2,000 years before that, it was about big feudal systems, big tribal systems, patriarchal male control of as many people as possible, and then them fighting amongst each other for more power of the globe. And that's... And then... But it's hard to see that now. We can see every element of that breaking up, from banking to Christianity to the big dynasties to commercialism, capitalism, and economy. All the, the strong footholds of that world that has been in existence for definitely clearly for 2000 years it's you can trace fracturing. back forward yeah and so if i was a mayan prophes- prof- prof- person prophesizing the future 4000 years ago it'd be hard for me to see what was going to happen after the 21st century we don't know but we know we're a time of utter flux and we know the humans in this last year and a half where all the norms were taken from us we went back to nature we went back to planting lettuce in our garden and to going walking and um, and swimming, like as I said, I live in the Midlands and people are now swimming in the lake. We have been on this island for 10,000 years. No one has ever swum in the Midland lakes in winter, ever. Like unless you had to dip <laughs> if you were f- fettered with molice, until this year, yeah. you know. So something is changing and we don't know because it's just the beginning of it. And people talking about a universal wage and all these concepts that were beyond conceiving of even 15 10 years ago. Yeah,
2: there is a sense that not only are we in a time of flux, we're in a time of exponentially racing flux. Like I remember thinking or talking about the 90s and how things quickly moved in the 90s with the with the information revolution and everything. Mm. But then they got faster in the 2000s and they are getting exponentially faster now even to for from for example the covid pandemic to these these seismic um Ecological and environmental disasters mm-hmm. happening now, yeah. like next week, last week. Yeah. You know, fires in mm-hmm. in in California in the Napa Valley, permafrost's the disasters mm-hmm. in Russia. These Arctic um, flows, the sea flows mm-hmm. changing slowly, the tidal flows yeah. in the world and. We must return to nature, I guess. We must return to nature. Um, I suppose that goes without saying, but I I don't know if you... You probably have a lot to say about that as well, Moncon. I mean, we must return to nature because our future wars are going to be now about food and they're going to be about um, water.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, well... The key thing, again, I was just saying, it was, it was e- relatively easy to prophesize the future for the last 2,000 years. You could see the pace, and you've just listed the reasons why, that no one can ever prophesy what's going to happen from now on in, except there's going to be an enormous amount of change, probably a lot of turmoil. And even in the year and a half, we had turmoil, but we saw all of this new growth and new possibility and light coming through it. So, although I don't want to be in any way rosy-eyed, and I know if you have that much change and turmoil, there will be angst, there will be trouble. But what I'm convinced of is new things will, co- new possibilities will come. And, you know, where we've come from 2000 years, where it was just so predictable, the men were going to be in charge, lesser and lesser, more powerful people were going to control more and more people. That needn't necessarily be the way. It could be a breakdown in society and small groups forming.
2: We like tribal, know. for example. What, what, what about the idea that I've thought about a little, um, the idea that we're not destined to survive Necessarily, mm-hmm. and I, I, I stress the word necessarily, yeah. so the idea that we have no God divine given right to be the the new Tyrannosaurus Rex on this earth mm-hmm. uh, we've only been around for a few hundred thousand years it's a it's a microsecond in in, in, in cosmic history, mm-hmm. and there's no, no reason why we should be around any further. In fact, our predilection is to destroy ourselves quite clearly, and we may very well destroy ourselves, albeit that we 're the most intelligent creatures mm-hmm. ever too roam the Earth. But we may disappear ourselves.
0: Yeah, but I don't accept that. I think that's too easy. I think that's too, uh, too easy to get off the the, the, the focus. Like, humans... And why I say, like, 2012 or now, 2021 could be the moment of humans where we're ignorant, and this is our moment of adolescence, we are now coming towards enlightenment, is because now we've woken up to what we have been doing for the last, you know, the, for particularly the last 200 years of increased industrialization or further back. And now we know we're damaging the soil and our only way is if we join together, if we cooperate, where everything up until this has been borders in nationalism, fortress Europe, fortress America. So now is the first time we're thinking, actually, the only way we're going to go is if we all uh, harmonise together. And the only way we go, if we don't give find our God to be capitalism because this idea of ever consuming more cannot survive. So to be at a moment of this excitement where humans might finally realise the idea of collaboration and cooperation and going for a greater vision than money and wealth. like Why would you want to say now, well, OK, we're going to give up? This is, this is the moment that humanity has been leading f- towards for the thousands of years. And clearly I'd go with your way if there was no hope. But we can see so much hope. Like... People, if people were happy with the status quo now, I would be worried. But people are miserable in their commutes, in their pointless jobs. People want to weigh out. That's why we drink, you know. That's why we spend so much money in brand Thomas or the likes, just to give meaning to our lives. Do you drink? Uh, yeah, I drink. I don't, no, I just wasn't born without, ex, you know, that gene to want to, to drink excess. But mm. I love I love IPAs, and yeah.
2: Oh, I so see you drink a lot, of beers or
0: yeah. whatever, yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, so... We And and so, you know, and again, this could be pie in the sky, thinking, except for the last year and a half, you've seen people do it, suddenly find meaning in walking and growing and vegetable being nature. And again, as I said, if this meant a miserable life, I would know it's going to fail. But my life is so rich. First, the one thing I'm not advocating we go back to is some sort of back on the land life that had been, that was so gruelling and hard in Ireland for thousands of years, but the one thing, so, you know, those long hours that our uncles or any rural life do. Or did, my grandfather, yeah. Exactly, God, gone. he
2: was milking the cows at half five in the morning That's and he it. was milking the cows at seven in the evening. Yeah, yeah, and the yeah. cows never milked themselves and nobody would milk them for him. No. And in the sleet, rain, snow, he'd have to milk them every night yeah. in the filthiest of weather. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he'd be settling down for the evening after his dinner and then he'd have to mm. brace himself to go, I'm off up now. <sighs> You're off up. Mm. Off up to do the cows in the dark.
0: Mm. Jesus. Yeah, hell. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we do not want to romanticize that past. But the one thing we do know is everyone would like to spend, I mean, maybe, maybe my vision is that everyone would like to spend three hours outside doing something meaningful in nature every second day, maybe even one, maybe two hours every day. So we want to, I get so much richness for my computer. I want to be on that computer for two or three hours a day. Yeah. But I also want to be outside for two or three Yes. Hours. And that's the balance. That's uh, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. We're all going to be doing different things. And that's whether right. There's a, whether we have a community centre in our village beside us which is where all folks go, which is where the boys, where there's more and more either children but particularly boys with sort of mental problems or a form of autism or just who are not fitting into this current world. Mm. So we will deal with our mental health in the community in this community farm where we also have our celebrations of 21st or 14 rather than going to the pub every time the pub still has a place yeah. but you have this place where you can get out into the land and I mean the reason that I got so excited was seeing how easy it is to grow vegetables and the first place that opened for me there was a group of professional surfers down in um, Lynch down in Clare they were the ones who found aliens the great big wave under the bottom of Cliffs and Moher and of course they're only interested in waves. These professional international surfers surfed the whole world but found this alien wave. They're big wave surfers. So the only An alien
2: was wave, is was it? a,
0: mass, it's a it's a name they gave to a wave that is underneath beneath the cliffs of Moor.
2: Massive big wave. So it's a it's a kind of a super wave. Exactly. Super which which wave. is a super surfing wave. That's right. And does it happen every 10 minutes or?
0: No, exactly. The Conditions have to be right. So maybe it could, I, I wouldn't be wrong, maybe yeah. like 20 times a year or something. But they so will, they
2: wait to catch this wave.
0: They will. And it's like, so they don't surf normal waves anymore. They're just interested in a big wave, which yeah. is something else. And it brings you up, it churns you up and you become the force of it. So they do that. And they used to as well, you know, they'd travel the world to find wherever the big wave was. But they gave up that and just declare. And then what they were going to do with the rest of the time, they started growing vegetables. So I, jo- I went to see these people. There's a farm called um, Moy Hill. It's changed since and I could just see rows upon rows of vegetables going for miles and these were these surfers who had never grown veg before but like for them they had that same determination they put to surfing they put it to vegetables and vegetables grow so bloody easily in Ireland Ireland has the perfect climate for trees and vegetables you know we don't need to irrigate it is always warm enough even in winter you can get certain vegetables you can get leeks and kales and and cabbage and they just grow so quickly in vast so we can be producing and like the amount of bloody food I I produce and I'm kind of lazy and I don't even and I'll try and do two hours every day, but often I'm away for days on end. I am producing gluts at the moment. The house is like the is alive with grapes with tomatoes with peppers with um um uh, with other th- with and we and grapes grapes grapes. in Ireland yeah lovely like, I'm and they my okay? own wine and my own um, yeah my own cider you made vine- your own wine yeah and yeah. my own different um, vinegars and then like outside hmm. is vast patches of squashes and pumpkins and then I have the French beans I have kales I have chard I have, I have just so much yeah. food so you just give it away because there's way too much food for anyone to eat so we can be producing a glut of food on very little land it actually helps us because we want to be doing something rather than always being on the computer so you just mix all these things up you create a community um, I can see a world where everybody is looked after and and it's not going back to some Mm. sort of hippie past
2: Um, Moncon I I made this question specifically for you bearing in mind everything I've heard and we've heard and how um, how you love solitude and being self-sustained and how um, the world of um, the world of uh, um, Mammon Mm -hmm. was not for you um, and that avarice and greed were not for you having said that if somebody said Go on now You've just won The Lotto Moncon Is there anything You'd love to buy That's just a complete And utter Like Spend Go on Or, or You don't have to yeah. but, but I, you, I
0: mean I'd love to buy Something but are you Telling me to buy Something pointless
2: Yeah uh, oh, oh. Pointless oh, and, and, and greedy And plastic And something uh, that Me and Shane would love
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I couldn't do it I, mean, I know what I do it, it. No, You I'd just bu- can't I'd buy land And I'm involved with, a, with, a, with a, a tree charity now in Clare Actually connected from Moyhill They're called Home Tree i just buy land to put trees on I uh-huh. put veg oh, I mean, Let me think, okay
2: something You don't have to I'm not forcing it. If it comes to you in a minute You can tell me Something really odious And greedy And sparkly And Kardashian-y The right. Kardashians are people Who are on television
0: <laughs> <laughs> It would just give me so little pleasure It would make me so sick I must be something gross I'd like to buy Ah uh, Buffy the, the Vampire box set or something <laughs> she's wise yeah. Buffy the Vampire's what the hell she's powerful myth
1: Okay. Powerful mate Yes exactly Augustender Ender was Buffy the vampire And the glunach And the And the Oisin met For Buffy
2: <laughs> Okay uh, A comedian That you go to um, And you see, again You don't watch TV And you don't take in This much stuff And aren't m- much music either But you did mention One comedian didn't you Yeah I did I mean you, does,
0: does that other The way that a comedian Makes you see the world Entirely differently mm. And from a, Like the earliest age That I thought Oh my god I am not seeing the world In a There's other people Who see it entirely differently and that was steve martin like his just his pure magic to make the world seem hilarious and magical and ridiculous was was just blew me away
2: um if you could be somebody else Mm -hmm. some people don't answer this question but you did who would it be did i one day oh uh if i answer did i answer that question do you want me to give you a hint yeah go on young people Oh, violent. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah, totally. That's a a brilliant idea, yeah. I'd love to be the Pope. Like, I believe that the... Christian church has more of a potential to change the world than anything else. I mean, they're so locked up into their old ways and into their their repression. But why do you say the Pope
2: as opposed to a leader of another church?
0: Yeah, just because he's got this amazing real estate, this beautiful architecture all over the world. Mm. He still has got a lot of followers who want to do selfless things. All of those, you know... In
2: the spirit of Christianity.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, they so often get lost in other things Mm. by taking away their own power. But I think there's an enormous... I mean, I suppose you could say the same GAA. A lot of people are doing things selflessly but they don't have the, quite the real estate and the beautiful buildings that the church does
2: brilliant moncon um i'm really enjoying this conversation but there are other people enjoying this conversation as well and they're on the line huh. um so they're actually on the phone at the moment Very good. and um i'm going to bring a few of them in a few of them have been waiting and the first is oh would you believe michael o'leary hmm. uh ryanair, ryanair uh, chief ceo my neighbor in Westmeath. go away yes hmm. your neighbor and in, in Moul- near mullingar say hello hello to you michael Hello to you, Mr. Magan,
1: Moncon Magan. Jesus Christ, I've had to listen to this for the last hour almost. This is absolutely insufferable. Can I ask you a favour, please? Yes, yes. Did you travel the world? I did, How did you travel the world?
0: I travelled in airplanes.
1: You travelled in airplanes? Oh but I thought you were a donkey loving, green, tree hugging environmentalist. But no, after all this shite, you got onto one of Ryanair's beautiful, comfortable uh, chicken stuffed sandwich serving seven three sevens,
0: didn't you? I did, I did I didn't realise at the time, so it was two years ago I I said I was giving up flying. I don't want to hear any of your fucking stories. Now shut your mouth and go away. I'm sorry, yeah, I'm a hypocrite in that right, I agree
2: he's gone um, let me see oh Conor McGregor is on the line huh Jesus Christ Conor McGregor say hello hello to you Conor
1: hey hey, hey come again Oh, man, I'm having such a good time listening to you, you little tow rag. Why wouldn't you want a Lamborghini Countach? Explain to me, why would you not like a Ferrari Testarossa GTO 920? Why would you not like the bling that the money I have could buy instead of buying oak trees?
0: <laughs> I did. I did have a Delorean. I once because I decided I wanted a total local car and it was going to be an Irish-made car. Hey. But it didn't please me. It did not please me.
1: But why do you not like blingy shit? <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: I'm sure, like it gives you a lot of meaning. For hey, some, hey. Yeah.
1: I'm going to fucking kick your head in. <laughs> <laughs> hey, 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 thanks, Mario.
2: Thanks, Conor McGregor. Jerry Adams is on the line. Huh. say Hello.
0: How are you, Jerry?
3: How are you? How are you? I'm John August the Drehar, Druon, fantastic human being. Garmagatari. Um, uh Mahu. You're a fantastic Republican.
0: Uh, no, my granny was a great Republican. Shut up Republican.
3: for a second. Yes, yeah, sir. I'd like to thank you and your grandparents. Have you ever thought of taking up the old rifle yourself?
0: Uh, no, no, I didn't, Jerry. I, I, do respect what my granny did and my granddad as, as what uh-huh. uh, um, a director of arms of the IRA. But things have changed.
3: Yeah. Right, so you're a pacifist.
0: Yeah, I'm a pacifist now. Yeah, yeah. Oh Jesus
3: Christ. Okay, fair enough. Um, how many trees are you growing again?
0: I'm growing about nine thousand trees now. Uh-huh. About to grow another load more in some new. How new
3: much are they be worth?
0: <laughs> they'll be worried it. it's going to be a while now but they're going to be worth some good money in another 50 years grand each I
3: suppose right there's a local Sinn Féin um, thing you can just you can fund you can contribute there so if you're not going to take up the rifle at least you know cough up ok mon I,
0: I hear you Jerry. I hear you I, I probably won't be doing that to be honest now to be honest All right.
3: Yeah, okay. No, no, we can agree to we, disagree. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. can compromise.
0: I did, I did run, you know, the general election for the Green Party, now Jerry. So oh,
3: they're all right. I showed my yeah, no problem with the Greens. Greens, <laughs> great color. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah good well,
3: start, Monk. Yeah,
0: no, it wasn't. You're for, getting there. No, no, it wasn't for that reason. No, no, no no,
3: no, no. You are. <laughs> no, I don't. You're bunking our.
0: Thank you, Jerry. I appreciate it. And again, I know my granny had great time for you, um, but you know, just th- things change,
2: things Jerry. Change. Uh huh. I haven't gone away, you know. Uh huh. Thanks, Jerry. Hector's on the line.
0: How are you, Hector?
1: How are you folks? Hector here. Thanks for taking me gig. Speaking Irish, going around the world, and acting like an ass. Jesus Christ.
0: I think. I think Hector. I was doing the first. I think we know that you took. Oh, my way Hey. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think. I think. Um. Like, if there's anyone, speak is, some it? Irish to me. <laughs> now, Mata Anna an éanach ve imníoch It's Hector. Togan. I was, the no, I I was TG Carrier's presenter until until you came along, Hector. So
1: imposter, it imposter.
2: Thanks, Hector. Mm. That is absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much, um, Moncon. You are an you are a, a, an enormously interesting person, um, and you are like a lot of people. Unlike a lot of people who chose the kind of life you have, um, you're 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 unsnobby about it in the sense that you reach out to other people as well all the time and you actually see the value of... You, you see the value in the potential decadence that other people wouldn't see that. So for, so, for example, you know that there's a place for computers. You know that there's a place for social media. You know that there's a place for all this good stuff. It's just that there's a place for other stuff as well.
0: Yeah, and I know, I'm mainly I'm aware of what a hypocrite I am and how sort of full of bullshit I am. So I have lovely ideas, <laughs> but like, you know, I'm still on, you know, Twitter and Instagram. I'm still, if I get a free five-star hotel, I'm in that hotel, Do you know. I, I'm an utter hypocrite, but I have these lovely ideas mixed with the most... Probably avaricious, small minded ideas Mm. as well and sort of moody ideas.
2: Do, does, I mean, it's almost fatuous of me to say um, that uh, the word ambition, because Mm. ambition almost jars Mm. against the very nature of the way you've lived your life. But I'll ask it anyway. Mm. I mean, um, would you, what would be your ambitions? I mean,
0: you're you're living
2: an incredible life, for example. So you're 51 years of age. Mm -hmm. A hundred years ago, a man aged 51 would have been done and dusted. Yeah. They would have been over, nearly mm-hmm. finished their lives. Mm-hmm. You are, you're not even halfway through really your life. What no. what kind of ambitions do you have?
0: Yeah. So like when you were saying, you know, what would I buy? I really wouldn't buy anything. But then ambition is sort of tied in with ego. And I definitely have an ego. And so there's definitely that ambition to get these ideas. I believe that there is that there is value in people going back to their own culture whether it's in Britain in Africa or in Ireland I think we can be fed by that and I think if we do do that we tend to be more rooted to the land and we probably tend to be happier and I would love to find ways of spreading that idea that don't sound mawkish that don't sound new age that don't sound wishy-washy that have potency and whether that's doing that in films or in podcasts or writing books I am very um ambitious, as you say, and I will be ego driven to get those ideas, to find clearer and clearer ways of saying those and not sounding like, uh, like when my brother came up to me in the Himalayas that first time, 1996, when I was up there living in a cow shed, you know, dreaming big idealistic dreams, drinking my own piss. He came out with a camera in TG Car and I was just saying, oh, we're all connected. We're all one. And Ruan turned off the camera and said, you fucking uh, over-educated waster. No one wants to hear your drivel. Like, this is, you know, wake up to yourself and get... People have a mortgage, people have a job, there's responsibilities. And he's right. He was right back then. And I'm still a bit in the dreamy, airy-fairy thing. So what I need to do is to find some way of balancing those two. There's a place for the dream and the vision, but you need to be realistic about where we are now. And then for my task is to find a way of expressing that hope and that vision in a clear way without being too
2: airy-fairy about it. Brilliant. Thank you, Moncon. Thank you. a truly, truly fascinating guy and it was great to talk to him and actually I'm thinking of signing up to um, one of his online Irish courses um, to pick up a few uh, words which I could probably use in sketches with Dottie O'Shea and people like that. Check out the show notes for this episode for more info on his book and his courses. Thanks again to Curry's PC World for your ongoing support. It's great. Thanks a million. Uh, Subscribe to the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Check me up on Twitter. I'm at giftgrubmario. You can email me personally, mariorosenstock at gmail.com. I'll get back to every one of you, and I read them all. Tell me your ideas for guests, sketches, things you've liked, things you haven't liked. Give me a rating. Rate the podcast. Give us a five. Um, and follow us. It really helps. Slán Bannock fóill. Live.